Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Wendy Zhang, Global Head of Data and Analytics in the pharma industry. She is an action-oriented, efficiency-seeking, and tireless lifelong learner, a problem solver, and a visionary biased towards action. She has spent the last 15 years helping Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies deliver business results through building and leading global analytics teams and driving end-to-end business-critical analytics initiatives at scale. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to Woman to Woman podcast. We're so excited to have you with us today. Adivya, thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's get started from your childhood. So where did you grow up? What really motivated you to move through the continents to get here? So you have done a lot of back and forth between different continents. So how does that all come about? Uh, definitely didn't happen on purpose, not by design. Actually, I grew up in China. I was born and raised in China up until I was in college. And then just by chance, I came to the States to visit my family and ended up staying. Uh, so I started going to college in California, went to UC Santa Cruz. And then um, during my senior year, I actually had the opportunity to go study abroad in England. And I chose to do that for a year because it was uh, fulfilling the my major uh, at the time was global economics. So it's really uh, the economics major, but in the international context. That's why it made sense for me to go to England. And then after college, I came back to California, worked for a couple of years, decided to go back to school. That's when I was taken to grad school to uh, Ohio, like Ohio State, you know, go Buckeye. And then after that, I worked there for a couple of years and uh, in the Ohio um, before coming over to D.C., I uh, spent maybe like uh, the last 10 years working in D.C. before my current role took me to Philadelphia. So that's pretty much like um, it's always um, that either work or school itself that took me to different places. So I've always uh, liked that on all the parts of the journey. It wasn't always easy going to a different country and a different state. And uh, But I have to say I've learned a lot and grown a lot from my experiences. And it must have been such a different cultural shock as well, right? Like growing up in China, then coming here for school. Um, I myself did something very similar. So I completely see, you know, Asian culture is very different. Western culture is very different. So how did you go about adjusting? And were there people who really shaped your life, helped you with this adjustment, kind of mentored you throughout this process? Yeah, definitely. It's been so long. Like when I came here, I was, you know, just 20 years old. It was not easy because obviously I had the language barrier and was going to school and I was also supporting myself through college, you know, so uh, speaking of challenges and then uh, just learning about all the different systems and how things work and finding my way through definitely was not easy. But there were a lot of people, really kind people who helped me along, along the way, especially when I finished college and started working. It's really the people who were there either um, through work or the people I reached out to because I wanted to learn from them. People who were uh, open and willing to open up to share their experiences and they always provide a lot of perspectives. And then also, I think it's important to have a support network. I would say like in my younger years, you know, especially in the first five or 10 years, I always made the point to connect with people who had similar experiences, sometimes like very similar challenges as well, to have that support network and have a sounding board and to confide in and to talk about your struggles 
And then especially someone who has been there and done that, instead of having to figure out everything yourself, I think that definitely helped. I would say in the first five years were probably the hardest ones. And then the interesting thing is actually uh, coming over here at such a young age and spending half of my life in the U.S. Then going back actually to home, there's sometimes reverse culture shock, which is very interesting because I think a lot of times what we don't realize is that, uh, uh, at least for me, is that when I left China, I kind of remember the way I left it. I kind of just expect it to be always the same as I left it. Of course, that's not true, right? But then it's like every time I go back, I'm just always amazed by how much has changed in a good way, you know, economical development. And then uh, compared to 20 years ago, right? So we all have witnessed all the uh, tremendous growth that China, China has gone through. Amazing feeling to see how much things have changed for, for the better. So you mentioned your degree was in global economics in undergrad, mm-hmm. and then you went into business analytics in George Washington. How did you get interested in data and analytics? Yeah, I mean, I love to say that I was a visionary. I, I was able to tell, you know, at the time that analytics was just going to become such a hot like area, you know, but I can't really say that. I had my undergrad in global economics, and then I started working in like kind of data collection and processing. And then I decided to go back to school and again accounting because that was relevant to the work I was doing at the time. I was actually doing project accounting work and then for a, uh, a retail company, actually, I was uh, in charge of like, a, um, of say anywhere between 50 or $100 million of IT project forecasting. So it made sense at the time just to, to supplement the, the area that I didn't really have the exposure to. I, after I graduated from my first uh, master's degree, getting an accounting degree, I didn't really work in the accounting field. I just started doing the data collection and analysis, I started working for the Air Force. I was in charge of really large projects and uh, anywhere from 50 million to like 1.5 billion, that was the largest one I've worked on. That involved a lot of data. But at the time, a lot of data was still in the Excel format. And there was a lot of, uh, I, I was really good at Excel. I was uh, doing a lot of analysis and slicing and dicing, had really major responsibilities and coming out of grad school. But I quickly also realized the limitations with Excel, right? So there's only that much you can do with it and then involve a lot of manual processing that you can get really fancy with that, but no, it still, it had its own limitations. That's when I thought, okay, so I've done this, I've done this really well, and I have learned a lot through doing this uh, large dollar project and just the contract negotiations and data analysis and had this kind of major responsibility. What do I want to do next? And then I thought at the time that being able to do statistical analysis and being able to work with big data and especially going beyond Excel and and do programming and using um, at a time was like a Python and R, which was really popular and including SAS as well. Um, Being able to do that, um, do data wrangling in the kind of capacity and the speed and the scale that Excel can never catch up with. That was really the driver of me going back to school again to get my second master's degree. And I was like, I'm done with master's degree. <laughs> and that's just like, you know, enough degrees for, for my lifetime probably. And that's how I got into it. That was 2015. That was just in the beginning of the, I would say, awakening of the society, like starting to realize, recognize how important analytics is. And uh, I was the first cohort. And then so just tells you that at the time that it was my school, George Washington was one of the very few schools 
that had the kind of program. And I was also fortunate enough, I was working and living in DC at the time, and I was going to school uh, to George Washington in person and as well. So fast forward seven years, a lot of schools now have data programs, but I like to think at the time, I just happened to make the right decision that was driven by my curiosity and constantly to learn and grow and just be able to do more. So now somebody who wants to get into this field or just exploring these options, right? Because they're maybe just looking at different colleges. What would your advice be? What kind of degree should they pursue? What kind of courses? What kind of skills should they be acquiring to become really good in data analytics and predictive analytics in the AI space? I think that's a great question. And that's a question I guess get asked very often by people who are new to the field. It varies a lot. That's one thing that I've learned after working in this field for the last few years is that it's so broad because when people think about AI, ML, then people immediately think about like coding, algorithms, programming, which could be very well, very important part of the the field, but it's so broad that entails a very wide, a big range of responsibilities and roles. And then, uh, and then what people don't realize is that it's like, you don't really have to be a programmer to work in the AI ML. I would say that in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of networking and talking to people in the industry. I actually know of a philosophy professor who is doing like AI ethics, right? You know, because I, that was, I was just amazed. I had a conversation with him he wrote a book and it, it was amazing to talk about AI ethics. And then the field is so broad that if you have the interest, I would say the first thing is to learn as much as you can about the field and know all the different kinds of possibilities. Because within this field, that AI ML building models, and that just really is just a component of that. It is a very important component. That's the most talk about component, probably the sexiest component, because people keep um, like referring to that. That's a really cool buzzword. But there's a lot of foundational work that you have to do with data, a lot of other uh, like qualitative work and considerations that you have to incorporate before you get to that stage. That's what people say that AI, uh, AI ML modeling, that's the say like a middle mile, but before you can get to that, you need to make sure you have good data and then that can mean very many different things. Finding the right data, workable data, reliable, so that you can do AI and ML is a major challenge. So that's the field of data management and the data governance. And But also, even from technology standpoint, you could touch on data engineering, architecture, and infrastructure. But then the business side of that is that you have to understand what kind of problems you are trying to solve. Because like there is a reason a lot of the uh, data science projects fail. And then it's because that they're not aligned with business strategy. So I always say that unless we're in the business to build models and sell models, otherwise there is always a business need. What is your need? You have to align that with your the business problems you're trying to solve. And then that requires stakeholder management, communication, collaboration. But even aside from that, like the very beginning of a AI ML project starts with the inception of defining the, your business requirements. And it's really, really difficult to find people who have like a, a broad range of experience all, all the way from the business requirements, communication to engineering, getting your data ready you know, within the platform, set up the environment to building models to translation, to back to business results, and then uh, into actionable insights for the business leaders. Data science is a team. It's not just one person, even though 
a lot of times we would like to find that perfect candidate who can do start, finish, we call it purple squirrel or unicorn. It's just like very few people can actually do that. So business people, technical people, like programmers and then engineers, that uh, there are all kinds of people who got into the data science field. And there is really no path, right? Like no set path that you have to have this degree and you have to be able to do this in order to start in this field. So now that you know so much, looking back, is there anything you would do differently? I probably did not take as much consideration, you know, when I made the decision, such as like moving out of state to Ohio, you know, it was a very different environment. I would say that it served me well in terms of like academic career wise. And then, uh, but it was very different environment from what I was in. And I was to say that I probably would have uh, taken the time to do more research, to know what I was getting into and then understand the environment a little bit better before I had done that. But, you know, I think in hindsight, it's, it just served the, the purpose. I got really uh, good, uh, got into a really good program. I was able to find a really fulfilling, meaningful job out of that. But there was a time when I decided to go back to school during the recession. If I had done my research, I would have known that it was not the best time to go back to school, right? But, you know, I went back to school anyways. And I came out of school in 2009 in the beginning of the recession. It was really difficult to find a job. So I would say I would advise people not to do what I did. Just like go um, back to school because you wanted to, you know, have to consider the broader environment. Is it going to serve you? How is it going to serve you? What are your uh, career prospects after you graduate? Eventually, it all worked out, but it was a difficult time for people coming out of school at that time. Timing is so important, right? What market you get into is as important as what market you get out of when you're going back to school. If you basically look at your career as different chapters, right? You did some work um, initially, then you got into finance. Now you're in pharma, very different fields. So how do you mm -hmm. think each of that helped you? And in our previous discussion, we talked about transferable skills. So when people are looking at a career, mm -hmm. look at what skill set you have and see how that applies across board, not industry specific. So can you talk a little bit about that? I didn't plan all this. It sort of just happened. But I also do think it is not completely random, you know, if you will. A lot of the decisions are driven, at least in my case, by my general curiosity to learn more about how things work. And then just I'm interested in learning everything about everything. I got into the data field after grad school and just uh, uh, slowly expanded my area and I, I could have been, I could have just like kept doing the things I was doing for the foreseeable, uh, the rest of my career, actually. I'm the type of person who always wants to continue to learn, to know what's out there. And then that drove me into discovery and explore, exploration into other fields. We got into financial services because of um, the connection that at the time I was working for the Federal Reserve. And, and the connection was like both of the, um, the Federal Reserve and my previous employer, they're federal sectors. 
that that was a relatively easy transition. And then I, I got into banking from there. Well, Federal Reserve is the Central Bank of America, right? So like got into the Central Bank of America because of data analysis, the collection skills, and then interest. And then from there, focused on banking. And then even in banking, I was working with a lot of quants, you know, people who have PhD in uh, statistics. The advantage that I was able to bring when I was leading a team to do a stress testing, the statistical forecasting for Wells Fargo was really that I understood how businesses were run. And then I understood that because of my background in business, the knowledge of understanding how large companies, such as one of the top you know, five like, defense companies, to really small, like a mom and pop shops, just knowing that how businesses run, the business models and accounting structures. And now that that really helped me combine with that, just the focus on data. At the end of the day, it's, it's all about how the businesses were run and how we're generating revenue, like best utilize our data to make predictive forecasting of the revenue in the stress us scenarios right but collectively i would like to say where the sum of our experiences and then those kind of experiences that I've gathered along the way really helped me to uh make the my transition like to like further advance my career and where i am now in pharma a lot of people would consider that's a really difficult transition and i would say it was <laughs> but what helped was that i was hired by a leader who has done work in both the healthcare and financial services so she was able to see the value of bringing an industry outside of industry perspective and then my area is still uh, focusing on a lot of the core functions and that exist everywhere, regardless of the industry and the company. So that's probably one of the easier transitions. I think we also talked about this, that I couldn't have possibly made it from being in banking financial services directly to R&D, you know, for healthcare. So it was still a natural transition. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future, but I always feel that there needs to be a bridge between one industry to another, one role to another, and then where you can propel yourself, you know, use that to pivot and then bring some of the uh, combination of, of skills and experiences and expertise and that could be valuable to your next role. Did you have any role models or mentors along the way? I had many. Yeah, so I was just uh, fortunate enough uh, that I had um, really inspiring role models and uh, mentors in my career and then even when I was in school. Uh, I say one of them was uh, my first boss when I joined the Air Force after grad school. She was very knowledgeable and super smart and then, but she was also very patient. You know, she taught me, I joined a, as an intern. And then, and so she taught me and other interns a lot of the knowledge and experience that she was able to acquire through 20 years of working for the Air Force. So there was a lot of wisdom, but, you know, above all, she was very, very patient and very willing to share um, her uh, knowledge. And so she was one of them. Like besides the knowledge and experience and just like watching how, just know what good looks like. You know, when you watch someone, like we know what a good leader looks like. I think like one of the very rare and very valuable traits that she had was she was always very supportive. And then she was um, always uh, looking at the upside. When I was very new to the field, didn't really know much about the work, but she was always able to point out what I was doing right. 
and then look, she saw a lot of potential in me. And that really helped me and just like uh, kept me going for a long time and then gave me the confidence that I much needed at the time, you know, as an intern coming out of grad school and starting working like hundreds of millions of dollars projects. It was very intimidating, but it's just knowing that she always had my back. I could always go to her. There are a lot of other mentors that I've had throughout my career as I progress and then move into especially different industries by the reserve. I think he had a very unique like ability to identify very, very positive strength in people. Because in the time I had a like a, a regular check-in meetings with him and we kept the mentoring for like a year until I left the Fed. And he really encouraged me to think outside of the box and to not confine myself to a certain level or certain certain role or responsibility to really think in accordance to my ability and what I have, what I have achieved and recognize my own potential, which is not very easy. Focusing on the things I haven't done yet, what I haven't learned yet, and then that's one of the things I'm you know, working on and then conscientiously to make sure that I focus on the positive and focus on the things that I have done. You know, and then he was really a, one of the, my best mentors as well, just being able to point me in the right direction and just like start thinking about things in a more positive way. That is so true. When we focus on our strengths and with positive reinforcement, you can get so much more done than by criticizing somebody. So let's talk about naysayers now. So you were very fortunate to have mentors who were very positive, uplifting, pointing your strengths to you. Did you also have any naysayers in your life? <laughs> yes, I definitely had a lot of naysayers. Not to say that they don't have good intentions. I think the ones with good intentions are even harder to resist. They generally look out for you. They have your best interests supposedly your best interest in your heart. When people discourage me from doing something, I like to think about it, it might be a projection of their own experiences and then their worries. I'm a person who always goes out of my comfort zone and tries different things. And when you do that, sometimes, well, oftentimes you, you fail. I have learned enough to know that failing is just part of the journey, that if you try everything, then everything succeeds, then they're probably too easy. You're not challenging myself. The naysayers, and I think most of them, they really had good intentions. It's about the misalignment of their outlook, you know, on life and how they would have done it. And then how they perceive like someone doing completely different things is probably not fathomable to them. So I definitely have a lot of people discourage uh, me from trying new things, warning me about possible unfavorable outcomes. Fortunately, I'm very determined because I'm very rational and logical. I would look at pros and cons and then, you know, think about it. And then I'll also just uh, ask myself honest question. Why do you want to do this? And then what if you fail? Right? So you're just being able to accurately and adequately assess the risk and benefits. Not making a decision is a decision in of itself. We have to be intentional and conscientious about what we're doing and what we're not doing. And then be, be clear about our choices. And what I've learned from dealing with naysayers is really not to take it personally. You know, like I read a book recently. It says, like, uh, thank you for your feedback. Right, so the, that's the, the title of the book. I learned a lot about that. One of the things is that the author encouraged us to always thank the other person for their feedback, even if sometimes it's a discouragement, even if they don't agree with your approach, even if it's the criticism. 
So the first thing is that thank you for your feedback. I will take that into consideration or not, right? So, you know, it's one of those things that it's just like we have to uh, learn to live with that without letting that guide us you know, to the places we should not have ended up in. So were there instances where you kind of felt you didn't get what you deserved because you were a woman? And how did you overcome that? A lot of us suffer from imposter syndrome. Why am I here? Right? What if they find me out, right? Like I'm not as qualified. So I think one of the ways we can deal with that is to look at the end results, to look at, you know, so this ties back to looking at the positives. And I, I genuinely believe there's really nothing wrong with looking at our gaps because everybody does have gaps. You know, we're, we're never going to be as complete, as you know, accomplished as we would want to be. Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but, you know, just because I've constantly had the desire to learn more, acquire more information. I am, you know, just like very focused on that. What other piece of information can I get before I form uh, formulate my decision? But I also think that focusing on the positives and reflecting on the uh, affirmations and then our past achievements and also think about like what got you here. And so, you know, those kind of things and being able to, to focus on the results rather than just like sitting there and second guessing yourself, that's probably going to do you um, good. Celebrate the small wins. You know, we always say in the data analytics field that you need to get a quick win, you need to gain credibility. But I'll say like in the on the personal level, whatever you do, you are able to achieve. We don't have to celebrate only at like a major achievement that would take like a long time to achieve. A lot of the incremental steps and the milestones can lead to a really incredible journey. So that's one of the things I think is important to focus on the small wins that we're able to achieve. It could be a very successful call with your stakeholders, right? You know, it could be a very good performance review. It, it could be a, a pat on the back, you know, from your boss. It could be something very small. It could be a very, uh, like a brief thank you email from your team. But I would say if this kind of small wins happen all the time in your life, it's probably a big, uh, a good sign that you're doing something right. Are there certain traits that we need to work on, improve upon? I think one of them is confidence and deal with the imposter syndrome that we all of us ever now and then would have. The other thing is what I've noticed is that negotiation, because I used to do this for a living and then I noticed that we tend not to negotiate as much. We're not as hard. And then uh, compared to some other situations where I've seen like a male would actually look at it differently, like look at uh, just perceived negotiation as part of the process. And then a lot of times when women, and I've read studies about this, like women tend not to negotiate. And it could be uh, salary, it could be discretionary, just compensation, or it could be your level, it could be asking for a promotion. And then the other thing is uh, just, you know, bragging about yourself. I read a book in like a little while ago, it just talks about that how you need to brag about yourself, about your accomplishments. And then I think this is one of the things can help with uh, the imposter syndrome and confidence. So they're clearly related. And then obviously celebrate the small wins, you know, small wins were like big wins and we all deserve celebration. We are very humble. We're very reserved. You know, we don't want to be seen as very arrogant. And then we don't want to come off as like a very rude and then only like rooting for ourselves. And we're, we're out there, you know, uh, trying to get a credibility or, you know, attention spotlight for ourselves. So I think really 
the mindset needs to change that I think everybody, women or men, when you've done a, a great thing or small or big, you really deserve to celebrate that. So this is regardless of gender, but we as women probably are less inclined to actually do that just because we're concerned about how we're going to be perceived. Are there certain values that you really abide by? Integrity is very important, honesty, and just to treat other people right. And then the other part is that I really want to make contributions that through either my personal um, uh, like uh, contributions or professional ones, those ones to just make a positive impact that through the work I do in my spare time or like a work time, those are really you know, the, the values I, I really believe in. So Wendy, any closing comments for our listeners? It's a very encouraging time. A lot of like the women professionals in this field. So I would really encourage people to seek out mentors, understand what this field is about. And then really test the water. And because I feel like this is a very exciting field, this is going to be the future, especially uh, uh, with the te- technological advancement in AI and uh, ML. This is definitely going to be a very exciting field to be in. And I do think there is a big space that uh, can utilize the strengths and that we women can bring. I really think it needs a very diverse skill set, professional qualities to, to make this field continuously grow and advance and then bring the industry forward. Thank you so much, Wendy. This was great. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Diva.